Hello, and welcome to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. On tonight's episode, grab your tinfoil hats, secure your spaceship parking spot, and get ready to explore the ultimate blend of self-help, science fiction, and a whole lot of Hollywood glamour. Brace yourselves, because we're about to lift the curtain on the zaniest religion since someone tried to convince us that Nicolas Cage movies make sense. Now, before we start... A quick disclaimer. If any strange men in suits with clipboards and intense stares show up at your doorstep after listening to this episode, we take no responsibility. Blame it on Thetans, not us. This is Scarlet Tavern. Guys, we're doing it. We're taking the leap. Oh boy. Into Scientology. I'm scared. I'm just glad for once I'm not being blamed and all the hate is going to be directed to me. Oh, oh it, it will be. If you guys have any issues with this episode, you can email Ben at Ben. Edwards at DungeonsAndMagi.com First the Scandinavian feminist, now the Scientologist. His address yeah. is... Do not do that. <laughs> but yes. Tonight, we are delving into part one of our four-part series on Scientology. We are going to dig deep into L. Ron Hubbard, um, some of his background, Dianetics, the how we founded the Church of Scientology. We are going to jump around a little bit between different stuff. His belief in Aleister Crowley. Um, and then some of the more modern stuff. Some of the bits where... Uh, they've threatened people and things like that. So we're going to be kind of jumping around here a little bit, but yeah. Um, at the time of this recording, it was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, ben and his wife Pam, Pam were here visiting. Um, and we remember most of the days. Oh, yeah. But we had a good time, and, uh, yeah, and then actually, no, by the time the last one airs, we'll more than likely be up there. Um, but yeah, soon we will be doing this actually in person, so, but yeah, well, lock your doors, because we are getting ready to jump right into Scientology. Alright. L. Ron Hubbard was born in 1911 in Tilden, Nebraska. He's the son of a U.S. Naval officer. His family were Methodist originally. Six months later, they moved to Oklahoma and then to Montana, living on a ranch near Helena. In 1923, Hubbard moved to Washington, D.C. In 1927, he made a summer trip to Hawaii China, Japan, the Philippines, and Guam, 
following this with a longer visit to East Asia in 1928. In 1929, he returned to the U.S. to complete high school. In 1930, he enrolled at George Washington University, where he began writing and publishing stories. He left university after two years, and in 1933 married his first wife, Margaret Polly Grubb. He then became a professional writer for Pulp Magazines and was elected president of the New York chapter of the American Fiction Guild in 1935. His first novel, Buckskin Brigades, appeared in 1937. From 1938 through the 1950s, he was part of a group of writers associated with the Pulp Magazine Astounding Science Fiction. They believe that Hubbard became one of the key figures in the golden age of pulp fiction. Just funny, because he can't write worth a shit. Um, in a later document called Excalibur, he recalled a near-death experience while under, under anesthetic during a dental operation in 1938. In 1940, Hubbard was commissioned as a lieutenant junior grade in the U.S. Navy. After the Pearl Harbor attack brought the U.S. into the Second World War, he was called to active duty, sent to the Philippines and then Australia. After the war, he married for a second time and returned to writing. He became involved with rocket scientist Jack Parsons and the latter's Agape Lodge, a Pasadena group practicing Thelema, the religion founded by occultist Aleister Crowley, who we will do an episode on. Hubbard later broke from the group and eloped with Parsons' girlfriend, Betty. The Church of Scientology later claimed that Hubbard's involvement with the Gape Lodge was at the behest of U.S. intelligence services, although neither the Scientology organization nor any other researcher has provided any evidence to substantiate this. In 1952, Hubbard would call Crowley a very good friend, despite never having met him although the Church of Scientology denies any influence from Thelema, Urban identified a significant amount of Crowley's influence in the early Scientology beliefs and practices of the 1950s. Yeah, so Scientology was heavily, heavily, uh, contrary to popular belief, was heavily influenced by Aleister Crowley. Uh, not surprising, he kind of pops up throughout that time period and every kind of like fringe society and occult uh, goings on it's uh it almost becomes like the Forrest Gump of uh of the occult fringe thing he's just everywhere and anywhere yeah and it's it's funny because he does he'll pop up in just about any cult uh, Aleister Crowley is there, which is funny because Aleister Crowley never even started a cult. He just, some of his beliefs were so far out there that these cults just grabbed onto him and ran with him. Um, during the late 1940s, Hubbard began developing a therapy system called Dianetics, first producing an unpub unpublished manuscript on the subject in 1948. He subsequently published his ideas as the article Dianetics, the Evolution of a Science in Astounding Science Fiction in May 1950. The magazine's editor, John W. Campbell, was sympathetic. Later that year, 
he published his ideas as the book Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, published by Hermitage House. The first edition contained an introduction from medical doctor Joseph A. Winter with an appendix by the philosopher Will Durant. Dianetics subsequently spent 28 weeks as a New York bestseller. Um, it was suggested that Dianetics was arguably the first major book of do-it-yourself psychotherapy. So a little bit about Dianetics. Dianetics describes a counseling technique, and we put counseling in quotations, a counseling technique known as auditing, in which an auditor assists a subject in conscious recall of traumatic events in the individual's past. It was originally intended to be a new psychotherapy. The stated intent is to free individuals of the influence of past traumas by a systematic exposure and removal of the engrams, or painful memories, these events have left behind, a process called clearing. Sounds like hypnotherapy, but okay. Uh, That's essentially what it is, and what's funny is Dianetics is still used in Scientology to this day. Oh, I'm... I'm sure they'll they're not going to give up their bread and butter in order to join Scientology you are required to be audited and you have to be you have to be audited at each level of Scientology we'll go through the levels later but there's a ton I will just say Tom Cruise isn't even at the top level hmm Um, in April 1950, Hubbard founded the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation, HDRF, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He began offering courses teaching people how to become auditors and lectured on the topic around the country. Hubbard's ideas generated a new Dianetics movement, which grew swiftly, partly because it was more accessible than psychotherapy and promised more immediate progress. Individuals and small groups practicing Dianetics appeared in various places across the U.S. and the U.K. Hubbard continually sought to refine his Dianetics techniques. In 1951, he introduced e-meters into the auditing process. The original Book One Auditing, which Hubbard promoted in the late 1940s and early 1950s, did not use an e-meter, but simply entailed a question-and-answer session between the auditor and clients. Hubbard labeled Dianetics a science rather than considering it a religion. At that time, his expressed views of religion were largely negative. He approached both the American Psychiatric Association and American Medical Association, but neither took Dianetics seriously. Wonder why. (coughs) Dr. Winter, hoping to have Dianetics accepted in the medical community, submitted papers outlining the principles and methodology of Dianetic Therapy to the Journal of the American Medical Association and the American Journal of Psychiatry in 1949, but these were rejected. So, the Journal of the AMA is the biggest publication that you can get in in the medical community. That is where breakthroughs in medical research are published and you generally publish in there and then are given grants and this and that and 
So trying to get it into the journal of the AMA is a big deal. Mm, I'm sure um, I, I would be interested to see their the the original rejection letter and what it said. I wonder if it just said batshit crazy. Pretty much. Much of the medical establishment and the Food and Drug Administration were skeptical and critical of Dianetics. They regarded his ideas as pseudomedicine and pseudoscience. During the early 1950s, several Dianetics practitioners were arrested, charged with practicing medicine without a license. Hubbard explicitly distanced Dianetics from hypnotism, claiming that the two were diametrically opposed in purpose. However, he acknowledged having used hypnotism during his early research, and various acquaintances reported observing him engage in hypnotism, sometimes for entertainment purposes. Hubbard also acknowledged certain similarities between his ideas in Freudian psychoanalysis, although maintained that Dianetics proved more adequate solutions to a person's problem than Sigmund Freud's ideas. So, Sigmund Freud... One of the greatest psychological father. minds. Possibly the father of modern psychiatry. Yeah. But L. Ron Hubbard is better. Right. So. Hubbard's thought was parallel with the trend of humanist psychology at the time, which also came about in the 1950s. As Dianetics developed, Hubbard began claiming that auditing was revealing evidence that people could recall past lives and thus provided evidence of an inner soul or spirit. This shift into metaphysical territory was reflected in Hubbard's second major book on Dianetics, Science of Survival, in 1951. Some Dianetics practitioners distanced themselves from these claims, believing that they veered into supernaturalism and away from Dianetics' pur uh, purported scientific credentials. Several of Hubbard's followers, including Campbell and Winter, distanced themselves from Hubbard, citing the latter's dogmatism and authoritarianism. I think we can see the, uh, this is all starting to go to his head. The, this is the beginning of creating a cult. Um, by April 1951... Hubbard's HDRF was facing financial ruin, and in 1952 it entered voluntary bankruptcy. Follow, following the bankruptcy, steward, stewardship of the Dianetics copyrights transferred from Hubbard to, Ron, to Don Purcell, who had provided HDRF with financial support. Purcell, Purcell then established his own Dianetics Center in Wichita, Kansas. So Hubbard decided to distance himself from Purcell's group and moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he formed the Hubbard Association of Scientologists. And there it starts. Westbrook commented that Hubbard's development of the term Scientology was born in part out of legal necessity because Purcell owned the copyrights to Dianetics but also reflected Hubbard's new philosophical and theological practices. In the early text written that year, Hubbard presented Scientology as the new quote-unquote science rather than as a religion. In March 1952, he married his third wife, Mary Sue Whip, who became an important part of his new Scientology movement. Um, Mary Sue definitely 
played a big part in the forming of Scientology. I don't think Scientology would be where it is today if it were not for her. If he never would have married her, I don't think it would be as big as it is. She kind of pushed him into everything and helped him along. Because he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Well, that's clear. Clear. He basically took his science. His probably probably took his rejected science fiction ideas and he basically made a religion. Yeah, basically. Uh, what's what's the religion with the spaghetti monster? Oh, I had a friend in the Air Force who wanted to actually convert, almost yeah. converted to that just so that he could get it on his dog tag. Oh, I forget what that is. It's like the flying spaghetti monsterism or something like that. It's a crazy. It, it, it's like a meme cult, but I, I love it. Let's see. Hold on. The national branches of the Church of Fl Flying Spaghetti Monster. Huh. It's called Pastafarianism. Pastafarianism. <laughs> I'm Next pos subject, everybody. The hiss, the rise, the rise of Pastanarians. <laughs> Yo, I'm I'm a Pastafarian. They they literally <laughs> took Rastafarian and put pasta in there. I would awesome. I would sooner I, you know what, I would I would convert to them before I'd ever go to Scientology. I want I wonder if we can if there's enough to do a thing on Pastafarianism. Ah, uh, who knows. I'm gonna look into that. We may we may do yeah. an episode on Pastafarianism because Stay tuned, the everybody. the person that started it is worshipped as a god. Uh, yeah, this will end well. Yeah, uh, that'll be great. Um, so we may we may do Pastafarianism. So I mean, why not? You've already reached out to one cult. What's another? One? Somebody write that down for me. Pastafarianism. Um, okay. So, uh, let's see, pasta, pasta, okay, I, I got sidetracked. Um, as the 1950s developed, Hubbard saw advantages of having a Scientology movement legally recognized as a religion. It was noted that Hubbard, Hubbard's efforts to redefine Scientology as a religion occurred gradually in fits and starts and largely in response to internal and external events that made such a definition of the movement both expedient and necessary. These influences included challenges to Hubbard's authority in Dianetics, attacks from external groups like the FDA and AMA, and Hubbard's growing interest in Asian religions and past life memories. Several other science fiction writers and Hubbard's son have reported that they heard Hubbard comment the way to make money was to start a religion. Duh. That's why there's... That's why there's... Pentecostal pastors with five million dollar fucking mansions. Yeah, I still haven't figured that one out. While, while their... Their congregation is sitting in a hovel. Yep. Um, asking people for donations so that they can upgrade their private jets. Exactly. Which we are going to touch on a Christian church that did that. Um, oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah, he's still active too. Um, that's that's just sad. But he went to he got caught in court and all of that. But yeah, we're it's uh, Joshua Media Ministries. 
um, it was a big, big deal because he was like Southern Pentecostal and found out that he had mansions who he wrote it off in their taxes as a place where everybody, it wasn't a house. It was a place where people could stay if they didn't have a place to stay. And then in court, he called it a home. Mm. And then same thing with his two Mercedes and all of that. Yeah. Joshua Media Ministries is horrible. Um, Harlan Ellison has told a story of seeing, seeing Hubbard at a gathering of the Hydra Club in 1953 or 1954. Hubbard was complaining of not being able to make a living on what he was being paid as a science fiction writer. Ellison says that Lester Del Rey told Hubbard that what he needed to do to get rich was start a religion. Um, so, for those that don't know, Lester Del Rey was a science fiction author, uh, science fiction author and editor. Um, he did, uh, one of his famous ones was called When the World Tottered. Um, let's see, he's done... He seems to have... He's done a lot of what, um, a contemporary of Hubbard. He was a pulp science fiction writer, yeah. science magazine, <clears throat> stuff like that. Um, very much in the same, in the same, in the same circles, obviously, as L. Ron Hubbard, whereas, unlike, um, Hubbard, um, Harlan Edison and Lester Del Rey actually had some meaningful, um, impact on the science fiction, um, genre. Um, Harlan Ellison actually wrote one of the best-known episodes of Star Trek, the original series, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, one of my favorite um, episodes, and um, can actually, and also considered one of the better episodes of the original series. <clears throat> yeah, so... And then the Hydra Club, it was a social organization of science fiction professionals and fans met in New York City during the 40s and 50s. Um... And there were nine founders, hence Hydra, the nine-headed monster. Included some of the very, some of the best-known um, science fiction writers of our times. Just one to just include Isaac Asimov. Judith Merrill, um, uh, Frederick Pohl, uh, George O. Smith has done a bunch of stuff. Like, there, uh, some of your best-known science fiction writers in the 40s and 50s were part of the Hydra Club. Um, oh, to pick these, these men, to pick their brains. Oh, yeah. L. Ron Hubbard, originally intended for Scientology to be considered a science, as stated in his writings. In May 1952, Scientology was organized to be put, was organized to put this intended science into practice, and in the same year, Hubbard published a new set of teachings as Scientology, a religious philosophy. Marco Frenchkowski quotes Hubbard in a letter written in 1953 to show that he never denied his original approach was not a religious one. Quote, Probably the greatest discovery of Scientology and its most forceful contribution to mankind has been the isolation, description, and handling of the human spirit, accomplished in July 1951 in Phoenix, Arizona, 
I established along scientific rather than religious or humanitarian lines that the thing which is the person, the personality, is separable from the body and the mind at will and without causing bodily death or derangement. End quote. Following the prosecution of Hubbard's Foundation for Teaching Medicine Without a License, in April 1953, Hubbard wrote a letter proposing that Scientology should be transformed into a religion. So, this is the thing. If the AMA would not have gone after him for teaching medicine without a license, he probably never would have formed the Scientology Church. I mean, how often have organizations trying to prevent something end up making it worse the, yeah pretty much like the u.s government in every war um and the fit in the 50s they were there was no shortage of them collectively hitting themselves in the in the heads over the heads you know trying to stamp out something um, seems like a complete waste of the government's resources let's go after this looney tune science fiction writer in arizona who is or, nothing who is nothing Weren't they communist? Weren't they supposed to be fighting co fighting communists or something at this point? Yeah. Um. As membership declined and finances grew tighter, Hubbard had reversed the hostility to religion he voiced in Dianetics. His letter discussed the legal and financial benefits of re of religious status. Hubbard outlined plans for setting up a chain of quote unquote spiritual guidance centers, charging customers five hundred dollars. For 24 hours of auditing uh, and in quotes that is real money charge enough and we be swamped he wrote I mean that's 1950s 500 dollars that's, that's a lot that's, that's uh, yeah that's nothing to sneeze at so I, I and the sad thing is there was probably people back then who would do it uh, with inflation that is 6200 dollars today $6,293.84 for 24 hours of so, bullshit. Like, are they, it's like 24 hours up, or is it like just eight hours you take, you get a meal and then you It's probably, from what I've read, it was, it was just like a full day. Um, you would, you would take breaks and stuff, because of the, the auditors would take breaks too, but you would get basically a full day. Um, <clears throat> he also wrote... Go ahead. No, I was just saying, I'm like... I'm just... All I'm seeing is a big neon sign over this thing that says scam. Like we have said with every other cult, they hit people at their lowest. Yeah. They get people who need the help and then they fuck them over. Yeah. Um, he also wrote, I await your reaction on the religion angle. In my opinion, we couldn't get worse public opinion than we have had or have less customers with what we've got to sell. A religious charter would be necessary in Pennsylvania and New Jersey to make it stick but I sure could make it stick. In December 1953, Hubbard incorporated three organizations, a Church of American Science, 
a church of Scientology, and a church of spiritual engineering in Camden, New Jersey. On February 18, 1954, with Hubbard's blessing, <clears throat> some of his followers set up the first local church of Scientology, the Church of Scientology of California, adopting the aims, purposes, principles, and creed of the Church of American Science as founded by L. Ron Hubbard. In 1955, Hubbard established the Founding Church of Scientology in Washington, D.C. The group declared that the Founding Church, as written in the Certificate of Incorporation for the Founding Church of Scientology in the District of Columbia, was to act as a parent church for the religious faith known as Scientology and to act as a church for the religious worship of the faith. During this period, the organization expanded to Australia, New Zealand, France, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. In 1959, Hubbard purchased St. Hill Manor in East Grinstead, Sussex, United Kingdom, which became the worldwide headquarters for the Church of Scientology and his personal residence. Now, this place, St. Hill Manor, is massive. It sits on 59 acres. Um, let's see. Let's see if I can find. I'll show you guys. This will, I'll actually use this as our Scientology thing. Um, so for you two. This is, <coughs> that was his headquarters. That's a nice place. It's just a little humble chateau. Mm-hmm. And it is actually a landmark site. Now. The Scientologist or for general British No, history? like, it is an official landmark site. Uh. Um because it is still considered the headquarters of Scientology. So it will it will as long as Scientology owns it it'll never go anywhere. But it was built in 1792 and had like a lot of owners. Oh yeah. Properties properties like that change between nobility families all the time. Um like the guy that built that built the a villa for John and Eliza Pope. Ooh. Yeah, so he is like his name was uh Benjamin Latrobe. And he built like uh he built or he was hired by President Jefferson to fill the position of surveyor of public buildings. Ooh. Yeah, in uh 1803. So this guy like knows what he's fucking doing um it's funny cause he actually he was born in the UK but he died in New Orleans um and I believe he built a lot of the buildings that are in New Orleans oh wouldn't surprise me um during Hubbard's years at St. Hill he traveled providing lectures and training in Australia South Africa and the United States and developing materials that would eventually become Scientology's core systematic theology and praxis. 
with the FDA increasingly suspicious of e-meters. Um, so I, uh, so the e-meter, it's called an electropsychometer. Um, it's a device for displaying electrodermal activity of a human being. It was, to be honest, it was originally like a fucking CD player. Um, but basically the way it works is, uh, you, whoever is being given the audit, they hold these two things in their hand, um, and it measures electrical charges, but yeah, they're, Oh, it it does. Like so, the the e meter was has been subject to litigation. Um, the Church of Scientology, by federal court order, had to publish a disclaimer declaring that the e meter by itself does nothing. It's incapable of improving health and is used specifically for spiritual purposes. <laughs> yeah, so it it literally like. It's so fucking stupid. It literally all it does is measures the uh, electric pulses running through your body, and of course, when you your body reacts to certain things. So when you ask certain questions that are going to trigger somebody, those electrical pulses are going to rapid fire because your brain is moving quicker um, to try and think of things. So that electrical impulse is going to hit. And so that's what they were using it for. And it's absolutely idiotic. Um, in January 1963, FDA agents raided offices of the organization, seizing over 100 e-meters as illegal medical devices and tons of literature that they accused of making false medical claims. The original suit by the FDA to condemn the literature and e-meters did not succeed, but the court ordered the organization to label every meter with a disclaimer that is purely religious artifact to post a $20,000 bond of compliance and to pay the FDA's legal expenses. So he didn't get off scotch-free. No, I was just seeing, it seems not. I, seems like the U.S. government has really got a, got, got a bone to pick with him and it's, I can't help but wonder if somebody in the government at the time got basically felt like they got scammed by Hubbard and they're like, you know what? I'm going to get this SOB. Well, so um, $20,000 with inflation and everything today uh, would be $204,000 that they had to pay. Uh, that'll make or break any organization. On top of paying all the FDA's legal expenses. I'm sure if, if, if the pattern that I'm seeing with the U.S. government, I'm sure they put every little thing off as their expense. Oh, they did. Like, like listen, we had, to, we had to pay for, pay to go into this restaurant just to use the bathroom. So here's this expense. And it's customers only. So yeah. we had to, like, order the creme brulee, the, 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 the giant sirloin steak. Here's the guys. best beer that they had possible. Yeah, plus the champagne and the gift store. Don't even get me started on the gift store. And then I had to, I spilled something, so I had to get dry cleaning done. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, this. I mean, it, <coughs> just, I, I, this is in no way defending the the Elron Hubbard. Oh, it really no. seems like it's like, what are you going after this guy for? I mean, it's obviously he's a, it's a scam, but it's a scam that people seem to be willingly participating yeah. in. And outside of again just mislabeling a few things that just kind of put a cramp in his style, but obviously is not slowing him down. It just seems like it's like it's like you said earlier. If you just like left him alone, he probably probably by the seventies he probably would have taken one too many LSD pills and yeah. yeah. Um, in the course of developing Scientology, Hubbard presented rapidly changing changing teachings that some have seen as often self-contradictory according to Lindholm for the inner cadre of Scientologists in that period involvement depended not so much on belief in a particular doctrine but an unquestioning faith in Hubbard with the church often under heavy criticism it adopted strong measures of attack in dealing with its critics in 1966, the church established a guardian's office, or GO, an intelligence unit devoted to undermining those hostile towards Scientology. The GO launched an extensive program of countering negative publicity, gathering intelligence, and infiltrating hostile organizations. In Operation Snow White, the GO infiltrated the IRS and several other government departments and stole, photocopied, and then returned tens of thousands of documents pertaining to the church, politicians, and celebrities. Maybe the Scientologists know who killed Kennedy. Well, so one thing that they did is one of the first people to speak out against them, uh, I forget her name, I think we're going to get into it later on, but they actually... Uh, made it look like she planted a bomb at their church. So they had somebody show up to her house with a clipboard. On the bottom of a clipboard had uh, a piece of tape on the bottom of it. And they had her sign something like a... Uh, I forget what it was, but they had her sign something and they were able to lift her fingerprints from that clipboard. Then they placed the fingerprints onto a bomb that they built and placed on their own church. And then they called in a bomb threat and had her arrested for terrorism. Wow. Obviously, she ended up getting off and all of that. It was proved to not be her. But, yeah, they went as far as to get her, try and get her for terrorism. I mean, this is... I mean, and then infiltrating the IRS. I mean, well, let's hear them out. Um, I'm joking, no. That's just... I also, if I remember, I also <laughs> heard they... Some of the other departments in the U.S. government they infiltrated was to include the State Department. Like, they, they got into, like like diplomatic um, at the time like diplomatic documents and everything it was and it was really hushed up like the US government like really kind of shut up about uh, how about this it only I think it only came out like years after it had happened yeah um <clears throat> in 1966 
Hubbard resigned as the executive director of the church. From that point on, he focused on developing the advanced levels of training. In 67, he established a new elite group, the Sea Organization, or Sea Org, the membership of which was drawn from the most committed members of the church. With its members living communally and holding senior positions in the church, the Sea Org was initially based on three ocean-going ships, the Diana, the Athena, and the Apollo. Reflecting Hubbard's fascination for the Navy, members had naval titles and uniforms. In 1975, the Sea Org moved its operations from ships to the new Flagland base in Clearwater, Florida. Um, so the Sea Org is where he spent most of his time. And when I tell you that that place was... Those people were fucked up. He had children working for him at, in the Sea Org. Um, and he basically had them like slaves when he wasn't sleeping with the other ones. Um, yeah, it's, um, Sea Org, even to this day, has, uh, oh boy, which I'm sure we're going to cover later about them and their activities. Yeah. Um, now the Flagland base, uh, that is, and I believe we'll cover some more later, but... That's in Clearwater, and that is their worldwide spiritual headquarters. Is in Clearwater. Um, it's they bought a hotel for two point three million dollars, and they it's still there. Um, but I think we get into that later. In nineteen seventy two, facing criminal charges in France. Hubbard returned to the United States and began living in an apartment in Queens, New York. In 1977, police raids on church premises in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles revealed the extent of the ghost infiltration into government departments and other groups. Eleven officials and agents of the church were indicted. In December 1979, they were sentenced to between four and five years each and individually fined $10,000. Um... Among those found guilty was Hubbard's then-wife, Mary Sue Hubbard. Public revelation of the GOES activities brought, brought widespread condem, uh, condemnation to, of the church. The church responded by closing down the GO and expelling those convicted of illegal activities. So, a safe face moment. A new Office of Special Affairs replaced the GO. A watchdog committee was set up in May 1979, and in September it declared that it now controlled all senior management in the church. At the start of the 1980s, Hubbard withdrew from public life, with only a small number of senior Scientologists ever seeing him again. 1980 and 1981 saw significant revamping at the highest levels of church hierarchy, with many senior members being demoted or leaving the church. By 1981, the 21-year-old 21, 21 David uh, Miscavige, who had been one of Hubbard's closest aides in the Sea Org, rose to prominence. That year, the All Clear Unit, or ACU, was established to take on Hubbard's responsibilities. In 1981, the Church of Scientology International was formally established, as was the Profit-Making Author Services Incorporated, ASI, which controlled the publishing of Hubbard's work. See, if 
Ron L. Hubbard can self-publish, so can we. <laughs> All we need is a religion and a dream. Alright. The Church of the Magi. Yeah. I declare myself the new messiah. Thank you, thank you. And we're all going to hell. Yeah. <coughs> um, in 1982, this was followed by the creation of the Religious Technology Center, which controlled all trademarks and service marks. The church had continued to grow. In 1980, it had centers in 52 countries, and by 1992, that was up to 74. Some senior members who found themselves sidelined regarded uh, David's, um, I hate his last name, so I'm just going to say David's rise to dominance as a coup, believing that Hubbard no longer had control over the church. Expressing opposition to the changes was senior member Bill Robertson, former captain of the Sea Org's flagship Apollo. At an October 1983 meeting, Robertson claimed that the organization had been infiltrated by government agents and was being corrupted. In 1984, he established a rival Scientology group, Ron's Org, and coined the term Free Org, which came to encompass all Scientologists outside the church. Robertson's departure was the first major schism within Scientology. Um, so yeah, it's starting to fall apart a little there. Um... It kind of smacks more of uh, jealousy than anything. I mean, it's kind of convenient. I mean, it'd be it'd be kind of funny if the government did or infiltrate Scientology. I mean, what are they gonna do? I mean, you you guys did it first. Yeah. Only fair, we do it to you. This sounds more like this sounds yeah, just personal. I'm sure little old Capitan probably got uh got passed up for promotion and he just was like well screw you guys I'm going to form my own religion yeah. and blackjack. during his seclusion <clears throat> Hubbard continued writing his the way to happiness was a response to a perceived decline in public morality <clears throat> he also returned to writing fiction including the sci-fi epic Battlefield Earth and the 10 volume Mission Earth Battlefield Earth is hands down the worst science fiction book I've ever read, and the movie was even worse. Damn you, John Travolta, for making it. Huh? He was a Scientologist, so... Oh, oh yeah, that movie was horrible. Ugh. No? Can't... Leave it to a Scientologist to make a Ron L. Hubbard movie. Oh, to this day, Travolta says it's his best crowning achievement. He loves it, and he doesn't... I don't care what anyone says. It's like, okay, well, you know... Yeah. It's ironic that you make a movie based on your religion, and your religion has got at least, three, from what we just covered, has at least three different offices that whose sole purpose is to make money. So, kind of a bit of an irony there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In 1980, church member Jerry Armstrong was given access to Hubbard's private archive as to conduct research for an official Hubbard biography. Armstrong contacted the messengers to raise discrepancies between the evidence he discovered and the church's claims regarding Hubbard's life. He duly left the church and took church papers with him, which they regained after taking him to court. Hubbard died at his ranch in Creston, California on January 24, 1986. Um, now, David succeeded Hubbard as head of the church in 1991. 
Time Magazine published a front page story attacking the church. The latter responded by following a loss, filing a lawsuit and launching a major public relations campaign. In 1993, the IRS dropped all litigation against the church and recognized it as a religious organization, with the UK's Home Office also recognizing it as a religious organization in 1996. The church then focuses opposition towards the Cult Awareness Network, or CAN, an a major anti-cult group. The church was part of a coalition of groups that successfully sued CAN, which then collapsed as a result of bankruptcy in 1996. It's a shame they're not still around. Sure, they were a wealth of knowledge. Oh, they especially because their leader was a deprogrammer. Ah, uh, very controversial. Uh, I'm sure it will probably, if we c cover other cults later in the pro in our show, deprogramming is very controversial. Well, even when it's... we already covered one cult that's related to Can, because Can was founded in the wake of the Jonestown massacre. That's true. Um. So he, yeah. Can't can's pretty cool. There's actually a lot we could probably do a small episode on can because they they've had their hand in a lot of stuff of trying to get rid of a lot of people. Um, Jonestown stuff. Um, uh, can't because can was initially directed by Patricia Ryan, who is the daughter of the congressman who was shot in the head at Jonestown. So, um, and there were some big key people in, in politics that were part of can. So we may do an episode on can because they're, they're definitely interesting enough and have their hand in enough stuff to be able to do a lot on them. Um, in 2008, the online activist collective anonymous i love anonymous um they do a lot of good stuff too launch project chanology with the stated aim of destroying the church this entailed denial of service attacks against church websites and demonstrations outside its premises in 2009 the saint petersburg times began a new series of exposés surrounding alleged abuse of church members especially at their re-education camp at gilman hot springs in california as well as prompting episodes of BBC's Par uh, Panorama and CNN's AC360 investigating the allegations, these articles launched a new series of negative press articles and books presenting themselves as exposés of the church. In 2009, the church established relations with the Nation of Islam. Over coming years, thousands of Nation of Islam members receive introductory Dianetics training, in 2012, Lewis commented on a recent decline in church membership. Those leaving for the free zone included a large number of high-level long-term Scientologists, among them Mark Rathbun and Mike Rinder. Um, Mark Rathbun was a former senior exec of Church of Scientology. Um, so he was also an inspector general for the Religious Technology Center. Uh, and then, um, Mike Rinder was 
another senior exec of Church of Scientology and the Sea Org. Um, and he was former executive director of the Office of Special Affairs. So he held a very big place. Um, and yeah, so those, those two left, which was a big hit for them. Um, now I want to kind of stop at this point because from here we're going to go into the different parts of Scientology, the core part of it, the different beliefs. Then we're going to get into some, some of where, again, we're going to get into beliefs, the, them stealing stuff from Freemasons and the Hermetic Order and stuff like that. Um, so we will end it here on that. And any, I don't want to say final thoughts because obviously we're not done, but any closing thoughts before we leave? I mean, this is all, I'm sure we all know this. This is just, re so far, the early foundings of the church. I'm sorry, but this is a scam. Hubbard was, was not making... Hubbard was probably making just enough that he could attend the fancy places at the Hydra Club and hobnobbing with his colleagues who were better writers and storytellers than he ever would be. And he just was like, I'm going to make my fortune. And he he saw that there was a market post-World War II. Everybody just needs to believe in something. And like the one guy said... Hey, make a religion. <clears throat> sure, he probably didn't mean to be taken seriously, but um, oh, old Ron ran with it. Well, and he, according to an estate filing after his death in '86, he was worth 26 million, which today is about 60 million. So yeah, mission accomplished for Ron. He became Hunter. filthy fucking rich. And. As much as it's a scam, it's a scam that people willingly walked into. And still, still are. If we go about 30 minutes south of here, we will run right into a church of Scientology. I say sure. we do our finale on this episode right in their fucking parking lot. Well, that'd be fun. If you go to the big churches, like the one in California and stuff, they have their own security. Oh, I'm sure that, they do. That they... rides around on bicycles and tries to kick people out. I, I just can't take that seriously. Oh, I'd laugh in their fucking face. Especially because they try and kick you off of the public street in between their buildings. That's just and some guy was auditing them. Yeah. <coughs> I don't... That's really my thing. It's just this... I'm sure L. Ron Hubbard was just laughing pretty much the day he died, just counting his money and how much he was able to get toward it. Yeah, he... Um... He was a piece of shit. Yes, he was. Um, ju and we didn't touch on it, but he did die of a stroke. 
Oh, okay. He wasn't just old age. Yeah, no, he died of a stroke. Um, how how fitting that he was first founding church was in Camden, New Jersey, of all places. Yeah. Oh. Shithole. Shithole for a shit church. I I have never been. I I take it you have. You are not missing much, Ben. Uh, it's close. It's far from where I grew up. It's close to where my mom was born. Yeah. Ah. I I um when Pam left Charleston to transfer to her to Massachusetts for the Air Force, I drove up with her to Massachusetts. She, she I slept through New Jersey, so I I actually missed. Except the only part of New Jersey I ever saw was the Vince Lombardi, like, park, like, rest area where she probably woke me up and told me, get out, you're driving through New York rush hour traffic. Well, let's be real, you didn't miss much. No, I didn't, so I really couldn't argue with her. So, now, I was... no, like, North Jersey is, parts of it are beautiful, but very, very expensive to live. Oh, I imagine so. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> with that, um, we will end part two here. Um, and we will be back next week to pick up part two and get into a little more of the beliefs. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a four-parter. Um, it may be three, but more than likely four. Um, and then we'll also get into all of the celebrities, people that left, stuff like that. Um, so, with that, I want to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.